0: Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Merciful and gracious God, we rejoice in you today. We proclaim your unrivaled greatness. We celebrate your perfect holiness. We are reminded continually with our hopeless dilemma. Left on our own, we are forever lost and separated from You. Left on our own, we own nothing but our sin and our depravity. Left on our own, we are destined to be exiled from Your presence. But praise Your glorious name. You have not left us trapped in sin and rebellion. We praise You. Let everything praise Your beautiful name. You have condescended to fulfill the law on our behalf. You have taken sin and died in our place to settle our debts. You have forever defeated death, hell, and the grave. Whoever trusts in You, confesses You as Lord, will be saved. This is Your promise. This is Your assurance. Lord, we pause to think this morning of the devastation that's racked our nation in the last few hours, those, Lord, who have uh, lost loved ones and friends and the destruction that abounds. We pray that, Lord, you would intervene, that you will send those who are uh, ambassadors of mercy and grace. We pray that eyes and hearts would be directed and drawn to You. These circumstances, Lord, will lead human beings to recognize that apart from You, indeed, we have nothing. We have no hope. Lord, we pray that You would Assure hearts of your ability, your desire to lift them from the pit of despair into your presence. You're still drawing sinners up to new life. This we proclaim today and confess. We ask that you hear us, that you be merciful to us, that you be our helper. Turn our sorrows our mourning our devastation into dancing equip and empower us to sing praises to you lord fill our hearts with your resounding truth and redemption yes weeping is but for the night your joy comes with the morning may we see the dawning of your joy even today Make it so, we pray, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Psalm 30 is a Davidic psalm. David penned this psalm. It's a little bit difficult to understand the circumstances behind this psalm. If you have a Bible that gives you captions, outlines of sections... It may say that this was a psalm written by David and that the occasion was the dedication of the temple. Well, those two would not have taken place together. The temple was not built in David's day. So it's thought that maybe David penned this psalm and that at some point in time later when the dedication of the temple occurred that this psalm was used on that occasion. It's hard to know exactly what was going on in David's life when he was led to write this psalm. It has a powerful message. And we are most drawn to verse 5 that says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. That's what draws our attention more times than not. That's the verse that is sort of iconic about this psalm. But there's so much more going on. It's such a rich hymn. And so we're going to unpack it this morning. We're going to do it in a little bit different way than you normally would look at it. We're not going to follow verse 1 all the way through verse 12. We're going to begin in the heart. This is one of those psalms that begins, and then it's as if you get a few verses into it, and it's like the psalmist says, Now, three days earlier, you know, you see that with a program or a movie or something where the scene is set, you get into the movie, and then all of a sudden, it takes you back to the beginning. So I'm going to begin at the beginning of the psalm, which would be verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. There are four steps Four movements in this psalm, and this is the one chronologically speaking. David is talking about what prompted his circumstances, and he begins with verse six and seven. Here he describes for us his own pride, his own pride, his own arrogance, and the subsequent discipline from God. It's a word we don't necessarily like, but it's an important word. It's an important word in our families. It's an important word in everything that we do. But it's not something that we especially like and embrace when it comes to our faith, our walk with the Lord. So let's think about the psalmist's pride and the discipline that comes from the Lord. He says that he knew great blessing and achievement. I said in my prosperity, when I read these first few verses in this middle section i'm immediately drawn to thinking about other passages other stories in the scripture one of those is found in daniel chapter 4 with nebuchadnezzar remember nebuchadnezzar was up walking on the roof of his palace and he was admiring the kingdom and he was giving himself many kudos many backpacks backpacks he was he was patting himself exalting himself this is my kingdom look at what I've done all this wonderful kingdom is mine and it's due to my hard work or I think about the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple going up to pray and the tax collector didn't consider himself worthy to even approach the center of the temple but yet there stood the pharisee in all of his pride thanking god that he was not like others like this pharisee but that he was special because he was a pharisee pride and arrogance the psalmist describes his arrogance he says i shall never be moved i shall never be moved hmm We Baptists have one of those hymns, don't we, that we've sung for years, that I shall not be moved. It's come to be a little bit more of a description of our indifference toward God. We want our ways. We want our preferences, not God's. He says, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. He's trusting in himself at this point. He's trusting in himself, presuming on God. There's a parable that Jesus shared in the Gospel of Luke about the man who was a rich landowner, had many things at his disposal, and he admired his kingdom. In fact, he said, I have so much, I don't have barns adequate to store all of it. So what shall I do? He said, I will tear down these barns and build bigger barns, and then I will have my heart's content. And the Lord responded, how? (laughs) You fool. I'm taking this from you this very night. Your life will be turned upside down. Be no more. You are presuming upon my goodness. And David admits this much for himself. I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Remember, he's writing now in the past tense. He's looking back to what he was. And he says, by your favor... By your favor, by your grace, by your blessing, these things were made mine. At the moment that he felt himself here, this wasn't wasn't an admission on his heart. He's speaking after the fact and looking back and recognizing the arrogance and pride that had taken over him. We don't know what was happening in David's life. Was it a devastating illness? It seems that he was on the brink of death. Was it something due to Absalom's rebellion? Was it Saul who was in pursuit of David? Or was it a consequence? Was it an after effect of David's egregious sin with Bathsheba and his cold blooded, calculated murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband? We don't know. I'm drawn back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 at the beginning, right before his fall and sin with Bathsheba. And that verse says there, the first verse says, it was the time when kings would go out and engage in battle. But David remained in Jerusalem. And everything spiraled down after that. But he acknowledges that God's grace and favor made him prosper, but he had lost sight of it at a crucial moment. He strayed. He sinned against God. He is acknowledging that he's in a dire situation, even at the point of death, and he's acknowledging that it was my fault. I brought this on myself. I rebelled against God. I sinned against God, and I deserve What I am facing. Maybe he was like the Edomites. You remember those descendants of Esau that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and were making their way to the promised land and they wanted to pass across the land that belonged to the Edomites they said can we pass we will not damage crops we won't look to the left or right we won't drink your water we just want to make passage it will save us some time and the Edomites said no you may not and God judged the Edomites in fact he said I'm going to blight you off the face of the earth There's a little book in the Old Testament right before Jonah called Obadiah. And it is the story of God's judgment falling on the Edomites. He says in Obadiah 3, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? They inhabited the land what is now Petra, just south of the Dead Sea, there between Jordan and Israel. Israel. And you have to be looking. You have to be looking to find a passageway into Petra through the rocks, through the canyons there. They're narrow passages. And they were very confident that they had the perfect place of protection. No one could find them. And if the enemy did find them and tried to move in on them, they had to go through these narrow passageways. They would be sitting decks. So... The Edomites had this prideful heart that they were far above any threats. But Obadiah 4 says, Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. God did the same thing in David's life. And while we might look at that discipline and think that this is something to be... Avoided It's something to be rejected, to be cast off, to, to flee from. It was actually an act of grace that God sent this discipline into his life. Notice what he says. You made my mountain stand strong. You gave me all of this. And then he says, with arrogance of my heart, you hid your face. You hid your face what does this mean you hid your face I think it's an expression of God's blessing let me share from numbers chapter 6 verses 24 and through 26 says the Lord bless you you know this blessing this benediction we use it sometimes here the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face what to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. In Psalm chapter 80, three times it is repeated in this psalm. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Or Psalm 24, 3-6 through 6 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. It speaks to God's blessing, but it speaks particularly to God's presence. So God turned his face from David. And this was discipline. This was to let David remember what it's like to be without God's presence. You'll see this take place in movies or television shows and one of those dramatic scenes between a parent and a child where the child has done something, you know, just almost unspeakable and the parent will say, just get out of my presence, get uh, out of my face, I don't want to see you right now. Maybe you've said that to a child at some point in time. I was watching a basketball game uh, a few years ago, two or three years ago. And the referee made a call that obviously players don't like. And during a timeout, one of the players I watched as he made his way to the referee, and he went in a very respectful way. He wasn't animated. He wasn't complaining. He just wanted an explanation is what it looked like. As he walked to the referee, the referee turned his back and folded his arms. That's essentially what God has done to David here. David was high and arrogant and prideful in himself. And the Lord turned his face. Gave him only his backside. And David said, I was dismayed. I was disturbed. I was terrified. See, this was discipline. God is disciplining him to show him what it's like to be separated from God again. Here's David who has been brought in by the grace of God, has known the love and affection of God, the fellowship with God. And he became so presumptuous in that. He became so complacent in it that he allowed his own heart and mind to fill up with arrogance to the point that God said, you know what? Let's see how you do on your own. You think you've done it all yourself. Let's see how you thrive truly alone. And it was a very uncomfortable place for him. It had its intended impact on David. Look in verses 8 through 10. And we see here the psalmist's brokenness and his cry for mercy. His brokenness and his cry for mercy. He cries out to the Lord and only to the Lord. You know, in our world, people look to lots of different places and things to find healing, to find strength, to find renewal, to find restoration. Lots of places we look seeking deliverance. We may successfully mask our issues or distract ourselves temporarily, but there's no remedy apart from God. No true remedy. To you, O Yahweh, I cry. To the Lord, I plead for mercy. There's only one who can help. He acknowledged his own responsibility for his sin. He is his own reason for being in this pit. And he appealed to God's merciful character. David's prayer is an emphatic argument. This strikes us kind of strangely. It does me to hear someone approach God with this audacious, argumentative style. He says, what profit is there in my death? (laughs) If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will I tell you of your faithfulness? It's hard for me to imagine walking into the presence of God and pleading for mercy and at the same time arguing, arguing why God should... Display mercy toward me. Yet Thomas Watson said prayer that is likely to prevail with God must be argumentative. God loves to have us plead with Him and overcome Him with arguments in prayer. Now I'm not sure I like the word overcome in that context, but the point still stands. And I had to think about this, but it's, He's true. He's exactly right. All through Scripture we see this evidenced. Abraham did this when interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember? Lord, what if there are 50 people there? Would you you be gracious? Yes, if there are 50 there. Well, well, Lord, don't be angry with me, but what if there are 45? What if there are 40? What if there are 35, 30, or 25? And down he went. And every time Abraham approaches God again, you want to suck in the breath just a little bit, don't you? You And go... Well, Abraham, don't, don't go any further. But he goes all the way down, doesn't he, to 10. He's arguing, making the case with God. You are a gracious God. You are a loving and kind and generous God. If there are but 10 people there, would you spare the city? God says, yes, I will. And that's a great argument, by the way, Abraham great argument because you're arguing out of what my character says Jacob did this when he wrestled with God in in Genesis or Exodus chapter 32 didn't he? Genesis 32 sorry God said turn me loose the daylight's coming he said I won't I won't turn you loose until you bless me Moses did this when interceding for Israel in Exodus 32 after the sin with the golden calf he pleaded with God. He said, yes, by all rights you should judge these people. You should exterminate these people. But if you do, your reputation before the nations will be marred and damaged. God said that's a good argument. What about the Canaanite woman who was pleading for her demon-obsessed daughter with Jesus in Matthew chapter 15? And she kept arguing with him, and Jesus even commended her for her faith. Or Jesus' own example in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times, we're told, he withdrew from his disciples in order to plead that the cup, this bitter cup, might pass from him. What profit is there in my death, he says. What is gained if I go down to the pit? There is no glory in this for God, and he will have lost a worshiper. Does it proclaim a witness to God's faithfulness? He's arguing that the greater accomplishment is in God's deliverance. Be my helper, O Lord. This is your glory. This is your glory. Be my rescuer. What happened? Verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3, we see the psalmist receives grace and restoration by God. This is where he begins writing, and now he's given us a look back at how he got to this point. The psalmist receives grace and restoration by God. Many forget God or complain against God. We gripe against God. We presume upon God. The psalmist says, I will give utterance to your glory and greatness. I have a high and honorable view and affection for you. I will express it boldly, confidently. I will extol you, O Lord. Why? Because you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. We hear this from David occasionally. David had this great fear of falling into the hands of his enemies. He was much more comfortable, much more desirous of trusting the character of God. Let me fall into your hands, O Lord, but not my enemies. Not my enemies. Why? Because he knows God is a gracious and kind and good God. You have not abandoned me to my enemies. This was important to him. I cried for help and you have restored and renewed me. I did not raise up myself, you brought me up, you drew me up. There's no such thing as pulling oneself up by their bootstraps. This picture, this picture is like drawing a pail of water up from a well. You know, the average residential well is anywhere from 100 feet deep to 800 feet deep, I read somewhere some even more than 1,000 feet deep. Can you imagine three or four football lengths distance? You're at the bottom of this shaft, this well, looking up, peering up through that narrow shaft. Maybe you can see a speck of daylight and maybe you can't. What's the chances of crawling out on your own? They're, they don't exist. They do not exist Someone sends down a rope and there's a harness and you simply slide your arms in the harness and they pull you out. This is what David pictures. I was in the pit. I had no hope in and of myself. There was no way I was getting out but you have drawn me up just like a well coming up out of the water. And you have rescued me. You have healed me, he says. Verse 3 is the one I like. You brought up my soul. This wasn't just a physical rescue. It wasn't just bringing him physically out of a dilemma. Physical sickness. But he says, I brought, he brought my soul up. There are many times... That We find ourselves in the bottom of one of those pits and it has nothing to do with us physically, does it? It has to do with everything in who we are. The soul finds its way down into the deep, dark recesses of depression and defeat and death. David says, the Lord draws us up. Draws us out of that well of defeat. The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my rescuer. My deliverer. Have you been in one of those desperate fixes? Maybe you are today. Have you felt the utter hopelessness of your situation? Have you experienced the thrill and exhilaration of being delivered and rescued? If you've ever come to Christ for His redemption, you should know this thrill and exhilaration, right? Or do we just presume upon it? Do we not understand what it meant to be lost and apart from Christ, trapped in our sin, hopeless? All of us who are in Christ today should know that thrill. Should know that thrill. And then we see the psalmist Joy and Worship of God, verses eleven and twelve. Verses eleven and twelve. The psalmist Joy and Worship of God. You have turned for me my mourning, my mourning, my sadness, my sorrows into dancing. Now, I'm not a dancer. I can can size you up. I I probably know who the dancers are in this crowd. I'm not one of them. And yet, my soul does dance before the Lord. My soul, lifted out of the pit of despair, cannot help itself but to effuse with praise and joy and dancing before the Lord for what He has done. This is what David is describing. You turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. How many of you got with sackcloth in your closet? You know, sackcloth was coarse. I mean, uh, we kind of compare it to burlap sack, and you probably don't even know what that is nowadays, right? It is rough. Uncomfortable. It was not it was not fashionable. It was not appealing to the eye. It was worn symbolically to express one's mourning and grief. Sackcloth and ashes we hear that the Israelites would wear, would dawn. You took off the filthy and ragged trappings of despair and hopelessness and you put on the clean, crisp wardrobe fit for a wedding or a ball. From sackcloth and ashes to black tie and regal gown. This is what God has done. David senses this and knows this and feels this in his heart and his being that my glory may sing your praise that my tongue may proclaim your praise. I will give thanks to you forever. He's overcome with passion to sing glory and praise. Now you may be one of those people that doesn't express things outwardly in this fashion. You don't have to dance a jig outwardly in order to feel this gratitude and this praise and this worship of God. You remember the party that Jesus was invited to in Luke's gospel? It was at a Pharisee's house and Jesus went in and reclined at the table and there was a woman who came in. You know, in those days, if there was a party going on at someone's house, it was pretty much open to the public. Anyone could come in and stand around the walls and observe and view what was going on. And Jesus was there at Simon the Pharisee's house and he was reclining. And this woman came in that was weeping. And she brought this this perfume. And she would weep tears onto the feet of Jesus. And she would take her hair and she would wipe his feet. And she was pouring the perfume and anointing his feet. Simon the Pharisee was appalled. (laughs) If... Jesus is who He claims to be. He would know who this woman is, what kind of sort she is, and He would not allow her to be doing this to Him. And Jesus said, Simon, let me ask you a question. Two people have a debt. One of them owes 50, one owes 500, and the one that they owe the debt to forgives them. Which one will love Him more? And he said, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven 500. He said, ah, you aren't that dense. You do get it. He said, you see, when I came in here tonight, you didn't do the customary things. You didn't wash my feet like any good host would have done. You didn't even have your slaves do my feet. But since this woman came in, she has not ceased to wet my feet, my dirty feet, with her tears and wipe them with her own hair and anoint them with this expensive perfume. Why? Because she has grace applied to her life and she cannot stop the praise that is flowing out of her. She knows what real forgiveness is. But you, Simon, have no idea. Those who recognize the greatness, the magnitude of God's deliverance will be overcome with unbridled joy and praise. How often do you think about what it means to be rescued? How often do you think that had God not come looking for you, that you were lost and and hopeless on your own? You had no way of saving yourself. You had no way. Of finding reconciliation with God. No way. No way. Maybe today you're still languishing in that pit of despair. Has God hidden His face from you? You're trying everything to gain His favor. Everything to experience the warmth of His countenance. And yet, you can't get it. He's so far away. Confess your sin. Cry out to Christ and plead for mercy and forgiveness. He says He will hear and respond. Are you in a place of suffering today? How confident are you in the promise of God that joy comes in the morning? The hope we have is that suffering is purposeful and temporary in this world. Do you trust that God is faithful to you even in your suffering? It's not enough for David to give effusive praise to the Deliverer, but verses 4 and 5, he urges his listeners to join him in praising God. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints! Those of you who have been adopted into the family of God, sing with me, he says. How can you refrain? How can you not sing praise and worship unto the Lord? Give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor, his grace is for life. What an incredible statement. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. Those who have been gathered into God's family, His anger is but for a moment, while His grace is life everlasting. In this Advent season, we remember and we rehearse. All of us were lost in a pit. Because Adam sinned. We were all born sinners, but God's face was hidden from us. And Jesus came into the pit to rescue us. He took on what we deserve. you remember on that cross when he looked to the Lord and he said to God, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he was saying? He was saying, my God, why have you turned your face away from me? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he said, it's because He made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that you and I could be forgiven of our sin. Jesus came into the pit to rescue us. He takes those who were lost in darkness and without hope and delivers them to life, returns them to the warm countenance of God's face. This is the joy that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. This is the joy that was promised with the coming of Messiah. This is the joy that is available to you today. When you recognize the greatness of this deliverance for you, you will be compelled to offer extraordinary response of praise and gladness to the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you and praise you today for who you are. What a glorious gift we have. Joy. Lord, you tell us the gospel, and you tell us that you say the gospel to us, give us the gospel that we might have joy, that we might have fullness of joy in you. I pray today that, Lord, we each would evaluate the joy meter in our lives. Are we being controlled, Lord, by the circumstances in this world? Or are we experiencing the joy of your personal presence in our lives? May your Spirit bring conviction where we're depending upon our own efforts. And may you bring illumination we might understand and embrace the gospel and know your joy in all of its fullness. And Lord, may we become true worshipers and proclaimers of your joy, living your joy daily for your glory, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.